Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. Welcome to the Kaiju Cast, a podcast that is 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. I am your host, Kyle, and once again, I have a fantastic show planned for the next hour or so. Uh, This month's guest is August Ragoni, a well-known name in the Godzilla fan community who sat down with me while I was in San Francisco for the WonderCon comic book convention. He and I are going to be talking about an old television show and why you... Kaiju fans should be clamoring for it. Additionally, after the interview, we'll review this month's film for our Daikaiju discussion. As is the norm here, I had some of my previous guests over to watch the film with me, and we talked in detail about what we thought worked and what didn't. I'll also have some interesting Kaiju-related news towards the end of the show. And uh, speaking of, we have a whole lot of show today, so let's rev things up by playing some requests. We'll start with Fateful Confrontation, by Machiro Oshima from Godzilla X Megaguirus for Tim, and follow that up with Super X2 theme by Koichi Sugiyama from Godzilla vs. Biollante for Tristan.
Joining the Kaiju cast this month is Kaiju Henshin and all-around Japanese culture enthusiast August Ragoni. August is very well known in Godzilla fandom, whose commentaries on Japanese film have been informing people around the world since he was a teenager, a well-known writer in the genre. His book, Eji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters, was published in 2007. He's currently working on special features for Shout Factory's upcoming Gamera discs and maintains his blog, The Good, The Bad, and Godzilla. Today, we're going to be talking about the classic television show, Ultra Q. August, thanks for joining the Kaiju Cast this month. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Kyle. So, one of the shows that I really wish I could share with people is the original Ultra Q series. Um, I heard you talk a little bit about it at G-Fest this year, this last year, but uh, can you explain how Ultra Q got its start? A.G. Subaraya wanted to start a special effects company uh, that would be available to hire out. Uh, to other studios uh, and also for American productions shooting in Japan and uh, to provide special effects uh, to larger studio films. He had previously done a couple of uh, effects companies on his own with his sons out of his house called uh, Special Effects uh, Laboratory uh, and uh, provided effects and opening credits for films for uh, Korea and Hong Kong. But he wanted to do it on a much larger scale. So with uh, financial investment from Toho, uh, one of the Toho producers, Sananzumi Fujimoto, who also produced some of Kurosawa's films, uh, was one of the board of directors in this new company. They launched as Super Eye Special Effects Productions, and uh, that launched in 1963 with the hope of uh, providing effects for film and television. What happened after that was they started pitching television shows uh, to different networks uh, to launch their own productions. Um, contrary to what a lot of other people think, that when Tsuburaya started his own company, that Toho uh, became uh, angry at him, as Toho was an investor in Tsuburaya's new company from the very beginning. 
So all that is a complete myth that has circulated around for a number of years. Cool. So they were on board. They were on board and from the beginning. Help, obviously. Right. And like I said, you know, one of the Toho uh, producers, executive producers, a close friend of Tsuburaya, Mr. Fujimoto, was on the board of directors of Tsuburaya Productions at the beginning. So uh, with Ultra Q, how did that develop? Well, they pitched uh, to Fuji Television, where uh, Tsuburaya's uh, second son, uh, Noboro, was working. Uh, a television show that would be a science fiction series called Wu, uh, which would involve this kind of a cloud-like, uh, shapeless, uh, corporeal life form that uh, accidentally comes to Earth and gets stuck on Earth and uh, is chased by the military and the world governments and attacked as a monster when he's actually this benign being and he's befriended by a photographer and his friends uh, for a magazine. Uh, and uh, they try to alert the public that Wu is not a bad guy, and Wu tries to prove himself by defeating invaders and, and other uh, monstrosities that uh, threaten mankind. Uh, the series didn't really get far in development uh, beyond storyboards and some early plot descriptions and some, some preliminary scripts, mm -hmm. and Fuji Television and Tsuburaya Productions went back and forth on this, but eventually... Uh, because of the expense involved in producing such a show, uh, Fuji Television pulled out. So the next step was that uh, they decided to pitch something to TBS. TBS, the other network, Tokyo Broadcasting System, was interested more in a Tsuburaya show, but since Wu was already pitched to Fuji, uh, TBS had come up with something different. So they developed a series called Unbalance, and Unbalance was going to be a show that would feature uh, nature in chaos what happens because of man's interference with nature and the repercussions of that. Uh, it was going to be an anthology series with a regular cast. Mm -hmm. So sort of like the X-Files and the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits, but with regular cast members every week. Right. And it was originally a mix of science fiction, um, mystery, horror, and giant monsters. But it would be a potpourri. It would be equally balanced even though the show was called Unbalanced, gotcha. with all these yeah. different science fiction elements that they could explore. And TBS approved of this series, and they green-lighted the show. Um, they eventually changed the title to Ultra Q. But during the early days when they started producing the show with Tsuburaya's name attached to it, before they even really started rolling the series in earnest, um, they'd only had a few episodes uh, under their belt, though they spent... 1964 and 1965 shooting the show, which was extremely long. They shot the show before it ever aired, so they would have the entire series in the can. It was projected at 28 episodes, so that's what they shot in 35 millimeter, mm -hmm. just like a feature film. And they would do all the episodes and wrap it before it would air. Now, so when they, as they were producing some episodes, TBS was testing the episodes. And TBS really felt that they should test children. So they showed a sample of episodes, a cross-section of episodes. The kids most responded to the giant monster episodes. Right, right, of course. So TBS's order to Tsuburaya Productions, who was in production of Ultra Q, mm -hmm. they were scripting and shooting, said, more monsters, less of the sci-fi stuff. Mm -hmm. At the same time, or around the same time, they had sent some episodes out, and there was a prospective overseas buyer. CBS Films in the United States. Right. CBS Films were the producers, ironically enough, of uh, Twilight Zone, one of the inspirations for Ultra Q. And 
to appeal to a Western audience. And this was not any influence from CBS Films, but TBS felt to kowtow to an American taste. They started considering the American taste or overseas taste. So they also ordered Tsuburaya Productions to limit the amount of references to Japanese things, Japanese culture, Japanese things like kimonos and things like this, and make it more Western. So it became more cosmopolitan, it became more international, it became uh, you know, more Western right. than what it might have been shot uh, with Tsuburaya just in c- complete creative control. So TBS was a very big influence on shaping the show and gearing it more towards giant monsters. Now, some of the episodes that you may have seen were, it's not a giant monster involved. Right. Some of those were usually shot early on in the production. Gotcha, gotcha. And when they were shown on television, uh, which they commenced broadcast on January 1st, 1966, they showed them out of production order. They made up this arbitrary order of, of running them, which is considered the official broadcast order. Mm-hmm. But one of the, <laughs> there was one Japanese uh, fanzine that's about the size of a phone book that came out in the late 70s or, it was, or the early 80s. Um, called the Ultra Q Record, uh, which a, a Japanese friend sent me eons ago when it was first published. And it had the broadcast order by the hairstyles of the main character, uh, Yuriko Edogawa. Oh, nice. So you could, like, track the hairstyle. Yeah, because she has short hair production. and then all the way to when she has long hair in the show. Right. So they kind of put it in this order of her hairstyle. <laughs> because it took about a year to shoot the series. Yeah. In total. All right. So while Ultraman was, like, sort of like a giant alien versus giant monster battle fest, had that sort of feel to it, Ultra Q definitely did have more of that Twilight Zone thing going on. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that it appeals to me is it's not just one thing. They're not just doing giant monsters and not just doing uh, people getting to be huge. And they're not, you know, doing the just the dream sequence kid on the turtle stuff. Right. It's all it's all, you know, it's like you said, a potpourri. So, like, did he have any did Subaraya or Subaraya's crew? They didn't have any trouble pitching the idea, obviously. But did they have any trouble with the changes? To the, they really to didn't the have any trouble with the changes. I mean, some of them might have felt, you know, disappointed because there were some scripts that were written uh, that they had to cancel mm-hmm. in order to shoot more monster episodes. So I'm sure that there was some disappointment on a, on one level, uh, like with any project anyone works on, uh, where someone, your editor or whoever is is commissioning you've, you've commissioned your work says, I'd like more of this and less of that. There were some rejected uh, teleplays uh, and only rejected in lieu of more monsters. But I'm sure that there was some level of disappointment, but I think that um, once Ultra Q premiered and the show was an unmitigated hit, achieving very, very high ratings, Mm -hmm. um, a 40 share, which is huge. Now, there were other shows in Japan because television was a brand new medium about 10 years behind America, thereabouts. Um, that television was very heavily watched, which led to the downfall of theatrical films in Japan, right? Yeah, we actually just talked about that in the last episode cool. because we watched Gigan. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, those, that, was, that was something that was happening. So the, the big hit that the show made and the cultural impact it made and how huge it was overnight, beginning with the first episode, mm-hmm. um, I think evaporated any kind of, you know, disappointments from anyone working on the production. Did he have a lot of different screenwriters writing 
the oh, show. Yeah. There were there were a lot of different screenwriters. They would basically get a series Bible, and you know the gist of the Bible um, was that you know the balances of the world are in upset, um, and that was the starting off point mm-hmm. for writing these scenarios. Of course, TBS again said, you know, okay, more giant monsters. So they, they went with that. Now, the writers came from a bunch of different sources. A lot of them were very young writers. Uh, A.G. Tsuburaya's first son, Hajime, uh, was very uh, instrumental in Ultra Q. And uh, he was working as a director at TBS, uh, which is the TBS connection with, gotcha. with Ultra yeah. Q. Uh, and he brought in a lot of people from the TBS side, a lot of directors that uh, he worked with, writers he worked with. Uh, some of the writers were pulled from uh, Toho's uh, literary department who were young writers that hadn't made a name for themselves yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually all these people that worked on the show, like Masahiro Yamada and Keisuke Fujikawa and Shozo Uehara, these guys eventually became huge writers in the 70s and 80s and working on a number of different genres. But uh, two of them in particular, uh, uh, Shozo Uehara and Keisuke Fujikawa, uh, worked on every show that's considered a classic in Japan from that period, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from the late 60s all the way through the 80s, uh, including, like, everything from the uh, Toei Space Sheriff series, the Super Sentai series, mm-hmm. uh, Mazinger Z, all the super robots, Dan Cougar, you name the show, if you tr- and Galaxy Express, Captain Harlock, you trace these people's names, and you'll see all the different genres that they worked on. Cool. So the writers, uh, there were a lot of young writers coming up from uh, TBS, and there were people coming over from Toho, and that also uh, was reflected in the directors and also the actors. So they were able to pull actors from Toho, um, directors from Toho, um, special effects people from Toho, and then uh, directors uh, and writers and such from TBS as well. So it was a big co-production between both companies. Yeah, the they show definitely it. has that sort of what I'd call like multi-person input. You yeah. can just tell it's it's different people did different things on the show, and they did a great job. And an interesting thing about um, the TBS side, because you had all these l- young directors, um, Hajime Tsuburaya won an award for a film called uh, The King of Smoke, uh, it was about kids growing up in industrial slums, poor kids during the post-war period. And uh, it was an award-winning uh, television film. Hmm. And it was shot on film, a lot of television before that. Uh, if, it was, uh, if it was kind of like something like the American counterpart, like Playhouse 90, these were like shot live usually, they were shooting on film. And these young guys were following like the French and Italian new wave. Mm-hmm. So they were incorporating, uh, they wanted to shoot on film, they were incorporating... Um, you know, Dutch camera angles and all this new wave influence in shooting, which also you see in Ultra Q and you see this very theatrical uh, style of shooting that yeah. wasn't like typical in America where they'd shoot everything. We've got to get cross lighting. We need a medium. We need a close-up. We need an uh, establishing shot. And we'll just edit from there. And it's shot kind of flat. Mm-hmm. Um, with, whereas uh, Subaraya, they had all these young guys that were powered up by these uh, influences uh, from the French New Wave and Italian New Wave. And also that uh, they were, a lot of these guys from TBS, um, TBS was a very smart company because what they did is they sent Hajime, Subaraya's son, and a bunch of these young directors to the United States to study American techniques in television production. So they had all this knowledge 
that led him to do these award-winning shows in Japan and eventually to do Ultra Q and launch the Ultra series. Yeah, you know, I was reading about that, not that specific piece in your book where you're talking about, you know, at one point, Japan, uh, Toho was trying to establish that they were the world leader in special effects. You know, trying to lead the way as far as special effects for... Um, for Asia, they were certainly the biggest um, studio, and a lot of work would get uh, uh, commissioned from them, mm-hmm. from uh, from Hong Kong, uh, from Shaw Brothers, from Korean productions. They would come in and hire uh, Subaraya's crew. Yeah. Eventually, they had to split that up because Toho wanted Subaraya to concentrate on the films that they were producing. Right. So they sort of established Subaraya Production to be able to farm out this this work. Yeah. to other studios and also foreign inve- foreign uh, companies. Yeah, I think it's an interesting because at that time, it seems like in the 60s, Japan was in the heyday of its film production. And, you know, you have a lot of people now who associate that stuff with cheesy effects. But really, at the time, Japan's technical side of film production was right. very well done. Oh, yeah, it really was. I mean, anyone who was growing up in that time period... It's really hard for anyone under, you know, maybe maybe for late 40s or early 50s to really wrap their heads around that. Mm-hmm. Um, because they weren't there. It wasn't a living part of their experience. It wasn't a living history. Right. You talk to uh, older fans, um, guys like uh, prominent guys that you, you know, that talk in this way and talk can talk from that that point of view mm-hmm. like Stan Hyde mm-hmm. uh, you know he's a model builder of renown I'm sure you're familiar with quite familiar with Stan yes and Stan's a great guy and, he, and I saw him do something at GFest 99 which just like nailed something on the head for me and it's something I never really kind of was able to articulate before that point because it hadn't really crossed my mind and I had this idea was rattling around in my head but it just wasn't coming out and and he was showing clips and trailers and talking about films that were not released on video yet or people were, had fallen out of circulation so people mm-hmm. weren't familiar with them and he was showing a trailer for Atragon and he was telling the people in the audience that um, at the time these films were made these were the top-notch effects in the world right and and he goes you, maybe you can't believe that right now you know, post-Star Wars. Right. But at the time, when we were kids sitting in the audience, we were going, oh, my God. Yeah. He goes, you, you don't have that, that point of reference. And that was the point of reference. There was, these things went one time were state-of-the-art. And then eventually the things that are state-of-the-art now are going to look, I hate to use that word, cheesy. Yeah. They're going to look dated. Dated, yeah. In the future. I wish I could share the show more with people but the you know as you know we don't really have another release and uh not yet anyway i know that i've seen a solid handful of the episodes and uh they weren't translated all so at all so no subtitles no dubbing so i basically had to just watch it and get the gist of it if i was really confused i found somebody's website that kind of detailed some of the episode uh informations you know by episode is there any chance that we will be able to see some sort of stateside or at least an English language release of Ultra Q? An interesting thing is last year at G-Fest, uh, the guest of honor was Kenji Sahara, the star of Ultra Q. Yep. And I had the honor and pleasure of doing a presentation with him uh, about Ultra Q. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, if you asked someone attending even a Godzilla convention, 
like where you would expect people to be familiar with what's out there, at least if by name, if not nothing else, mm-hmm. to raise their hands if they knew what Ultra Q was or Ultraman even, and a lot of people would not. There would be very few people raising their hands. Right. Last year, we had a packed house for this Ultra Q presentation, you know, thanks to Sahara being there. Oh, so I was like, well, Sahara's here, so that's why they're really here. I wonder how many people... So I asked, how many people are familiar with Ultra Q? And it was a good three-quarters of the crowd raised their hands. Then I asked how many people have actually watched the show, and it was a little lesser of a number. Mm-hmm. But it was an impressive amount of hands. Yeah. I was like, wow. And I... Th- I, I partly thank the the death of Godzilla. <laughs> you know, <laughs> for fi- people wanting for Final to like, Wars, get more for stuff. To get, right, to go beyond to go beyond that. And uh, we asked Sahara, um, you know, uh, Sahara actually, you know, asked how many people would be interested in seeing it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, released in the United States. And I asked the question, you know, would you all buy it if it came out? And everyone raised their hands. Yeah, I think I raised both my hands right. at the time, yeah. And, and what did Sahara tell us, man? Sahara said that he was going to go back to Japan and tell everybody that uh, at Subaru Productions that they should release Ultra Q in the United States. And he also said that in 2010, there would be uh, big Ultra Q things happening in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, he intimated at a new DVD release, which now in the pages of New Type Live, they said that they were going to do... Um, they were going to do... Uh, a Blu-ray upcoming release. No set date, so nobody write in to ask when it's coming out. They just said they will be doing Blu-ray. Right. Another thing that I'm going to break here for the first time. I was going to do it on my blog uh, last year. But this means you don't have to type now. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's what's going on. Super Eye Productions became interested in marketing Ultra Q overseas. Uh, again, Once again, uh, about 15 years ago, they tried to have some episodes colorized just to do colorization tests. Uh, BBC Television in England was interested in picking up the show, sort of, kind of. Right. So they did a couple of tests. Uh, they hired an American company to, to do some tests. Tests looked fairly okay for the time it was done in, but it never went anywhere, so they dropped it. They never went beyond a test reel. More recently, they were impressed by uh, legendary pictures. Uh, work on the Harryhausen films. So uh, they ordered another test reel to be done. Mm. And they're colorizing Ultra Q. Oh, Legendary Pictures is. Yeah. Wow. Legendary Pictures has been hired to colorize Ultra Q. Um, I've contacted Legendary Pictures and uh, hoping to set up some kind of a formal interview with them on the project. Um, The CEO of Subaraya Productions, uh, who was recently placed in charge uh, Shinichi Oka, who came up as a special effects guy, worked on also Super Robot Red Baron, uh-huh. uh, which is available on DVD in the United <laughs> States. Um, and he was the director of photography on all the Ultraman movies during okay. the 90s and, uh, and became a producer. And now he's the CEO of Subaraya Productions and a personal friend, I could, I'm happy to say. Nice, nice. Super nice guy. I think he liked me because I said I loved Red Baron. He said, oh, oh, that old thing, we were just young kids doing crazy stuff, and it's, it's terrible. And I go, no, it's awesome. And I think that kind of won him over. But, uh, but anyway, I'm talking to him about uh, some interesting Ultra Q things that are also in development, which I can't talk about right now. Um, but we'll see 
you know, as soon as I'm able to talk about it, I'll let you know first, Kyle. Awesome, man. Uh, but they are colorizing Ultra Q. Whether that's going to be part of this Blu-ray release or some kind of other release, um, I think that they might go to the domestic market first of what they're talking about, and then they'll have it ready to offer uh, for a foreign release. I don't know if Legendary Pictures is uh, interested in the uh, a co-investment or a some sort of... Uh, you know, North American release on this. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really saying anything there. You know, it's like no comment right now. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, that's that's awesome news. So that's a good possibility for the future. Yeah. And of course, you know, there's you were talking about the translation now. So Ultra Q was dubbed into English uh, by a company in uh, Toronto called uh, Film Sound, a famous sound studio that Hollywood has leaned on over the years. Uh, you know, because they're they're cheaper and they do a really good job. And they eventually became Deluxe. Uh, part of Deluxe, and they're based out of Toronto, still in existence, but they started out as an independent uh, sound recording studio for, for film and television. Um, and they had dubbed the original series. Now, for years, there was only the one episode floating out of Japan. Everybody presumed that it was a pilot. That was just, They just dubbed one sample episode. Is that the, the Namagon episode? Yes, right, episode yeah. three. Yeah, yeah, The Gift from Space. And they eventually... A, coll- a couple of collectors in the United States stumbled across uh, more episodes on 16 millimeter that were floating around probably out of, you know, whoever originally held the films. Wow. Well, CBS couldn't do anything with the show because people might say, well, if they dubbed it, why didn't it get shown anywhere? Right. Well, color television was emerging by 1966, 1967 when the show was available for U.S. distribution. Oh. And syndicators were no longer interested in black and white TV shows, new TV shows in black and white, because right. everybody was pushing color television. So uh, CBS kind of gave up on it. Um, United Artists was going to uh, pick up Ultraman, which was the new color show that spun off of Ultra Q. And so uh, United Artists took Ultra Q, and there, there was materials from United Artists that prove that it was offered, but no one ever picked it up um, because it was black and white. And then it just fell into disuse and kind of like into obscurity. Now, uh, I've since found out that all the other episodes of Ultra Q were dubbed into English. So we I finally got confirmation that uh, all of them were dubbed. I did a lot of detective work while I was working on my book, A.G. Subaraya, Master of Monsters, that we found out that uh, the entire series was dubbed into English. And uh, all but one episode is, uh, I think it's one or two episodes are missing, hmm. but they just might be mislabeled. Right. Well, that's that's actually really amazing news, man. That is, that's, uh, I don't know about you listeners out there who are hearing this, but whether you know it or not, that's, that's pretty earth shattering because we need to band together and get this produced. So August, if there's, yeah. if there's anything I can do to like help push this, yeah. In the right direction. I know I don't have a ton of listeners, but if I can get these guys to push a button on their <coughs> computer somewhere, we could definitely increase some write numbers. Your, yeah, write your congressman. Yeah, write your congressman. Um, but I, you know, I just want to let you know that the the Ultra Q colorization has been mentioned in the pages of uh, uh, New Type, the live Japanese mm-hmm. publication done by Katakawa uh, mm-hmm. on live action uh, Tokusatsu special effects TV shows and movies, but the uh, information I just gave you about the dubbing. It's a world exclusive that you just have right there. Sweet. That's I think that's the first time the Kaiju cast has ever had a world exclusive. Now I gotta do the episode sooner. <laughs> yeah. So nobody scoops it out from under me. What is your favorite Ultra Q episode? That's a hard one. You know, right I now. really like I kinda really like all of them. There's ones that I watch more than the others, but 
you know, it's that whole thing we were talking about, that there's all these different styles. And um, when they were doing the show, they came up with what they called the three streams, which were science fiction, uh, fantasy, and comedy. And those were the three intertwining streams in the philosophy of writing the Ultra Q I series. Could, I can totally see that. So, Definitely. you know, you can ask, you know, what's your favorite fantasy episode? Yeah. And, you know, I could say that it was Grow Up Turtle. Uh, where it's a riff on the uh, Urashima Taro folktale about the young boy who wishes to, you know, meet the beautiful princess at the bottom of the sea, and this turtle takes him down, 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 and uh, he spends a day down there and fights a dragon, and then he eventually comes back to the surface, and like 60 years have passed. And he oh, only right. thought he was there one day. <laughs> he's, he's got so this a lot of old people, man beard. Right. So a lot of people watching that episode might not get it because that was one that got by with the Japanese cultural references I was talking about earlier. Right, like right. TBS going kind of curb the references because the foreigners aren't going to get it unless we give them footnotes. Gotcha. You know? Yeah, I totally didn't catch that right. when I watched it. But I do love that episode. That, that's actually yeah, one that's, of my that's favorite a, that's ones, That's a fun too. episode. It's uh, hilarious, too. I think probably my favorite of the fantasy episodes is the Kanagan's Cocoon. And and Kanagan definitely went on to be bigger and better and more popular. Yeah, a huge star. Huge even though star. He, he appeared in a couple other things. And there's a weird Gamera uh, Kanagan connection, too. Really? Uh, in 1984, Noriaki Yuasa was hired by Super Eye Productions to produce a support film uh, for the Ultraman story. The thing with, you know, the story of Ultraman Taro growing up. Oh, okay. Um, some of you out there might know the film, but you could look it up on the internet. Google it. Taro. Google. Uh, it's the Ultraman story. Okay. Ultraman Monogatari. The whole story of Ultraman Taro from little guy to big guy. Gotcha. And copious amounts of stock footage and the cool monster Grand King. That's yes. in that. That yeah. recently came out as a Bandai figure finally. But um, there was a support feature called Anime-chan, or little anime, about this girl who runs around and hangs out with all these characters. You know, that Super Aya properties like Busca and Kanegon. Yeah, and they got Yuasa to do that since he was so expert at doing children's films, and also the fact that he had done a famous TV show called uh, Miss Comet or Comet Kometosan, okay. which was uh, about a girl from space, kind of like Bewitched, but um, she's a teenage girl, but she's from outer space. Crazy, <laughs> you know. And that's another thing that really influenced early Japanese television was were American sitcoms, uh, the early sitcoms. And American TV shows like The Fugitive and Combat and um, Highway Patrol, The Adventures of Superman was a big influence because that was a big hit. And Japanese television had a dearth of original productions because the studios at first, and kind of similar thing happened in the United States, American, the Japanese studios rather, originally gave Japanese television networks, here's all our old films, we're not showing these anymore, you can just show these. Uh And then some bean counters went, hey, uh, you know, we're not making a whole big profit off of this. So they pull, and and some people also had the opinion, and some people were executives also had the opinion, that uh, television was below movies. Oh, right, right. So we should really get our work off of television because it's not really representative. It's being shown on a small screen. These mm-hmm. are meant for a theater. But nobody was doing anything with these vault films. They certainly weren't re-releasing them because during the time, the Japanese were producing, like, you had double bills coming out every two weeks from all the studios, all five studios. All right. So they yanked all the films from television and said, no films on television, which is one of the reasons why children today in Japan are not as familiar with Godzilla 
Okay, oh, we are as Amer- they American show counterparts because they weren't syndicated. Oh. They weren't run on television to death. Really? And yeah, now they're on television more frequently, but they're on satellite cable channels. Gotcha. So you have to look at them. It wasn't like when you were a kid and you only had four or five channels. It was similar in Japan. They had three or four channels, like in the Tokyo area, let's say. Uh-huh. And if they ran these on TV all the time, you'd, kids would be saturated by them like our generation was. Right. But they didn't have that, that advantage. So they pull all this stuff from television. Japanese networks were ill-equipped to film television shows. They didn't have the know-how. They could do live programs. Uh-huh. They could do live dramas, but they had no real knowledge because they were really, it was a young medium. They had no knowledge of film production. They had to get film people in, but all the studios refused to cooperate, even producing television shows for the networks. Because they were just strictly doing film. They were like, movies. oh, film is this and television is that. Right. The very snobbish attitude that was going on. So what happened is some advertising companies that were producing commercials, uh-huh. like snappy, you know, commercial ads for television, for products, you know, just like Coca-Cola or whatever, Japanese products. So these commercial companies started picking up the ball and doing film television shows. Mm-hmm. One of the studios that came out of the post-war period was Toei, mm-hmm. a young upstart company, and they saw the potential in not being snobs about television and leaped on television film production right away. And they started off their first year in 1959, launching their television division, launched like several TV programs for one network, two or three shows. Yeah. Three years later, they had 11 shows in production. And they were still producing all their films at the same time. They just developed a film production thing. Yeah. So eventually, by 1960, 61, 62, Toei had 10, 20 shows on television. And then when they started their animation department, they had even more shows on television. Wow. But the other studios started having to pick up the ball and produce shows for television. So when Ultra Q came about, there was very little competition from the other studios. Right. Uh, You know, Dae hadn't launched their television division until like the early 60s. And they were all very kind of careful productions. And TBS knew this. So TBS invested a lot of money into Ultra Q. And if you compare it to other television shows at the time from Japan, you can really see. Yeah. But um, the development of Japanese television was influenced mostly by, um, back to my original thought, about the American TV shows. So they had this dearth of, of production. So they were, the networks were buying up tons of American TV shows. Yeah. Like and like what I mentioned, like Highway Patrol right. and uh, Car 54. Adventures of Superman, Bewitched, yeah. and so on. And these became huge hits and also influenced, in turn, Japanese television shows. It's kind of spun off of those things. Cool. Cool, man. Well, thank you for being here. Why don't you tell me a little bit about like the influence Absolutely. that uh, Ultra Q had on Japanese television and even cinema? Yeah. Like, again, you know, it was a gigantic hit when it debuted. Uh, it made... Uh, it just made such a wave. It made such a splash when it came out that it also launched Subaraya from this filmmaker that everyone knew and respected to sort of a kid's idol because in magazines were covering that it's Eiji Subaraya, the father of Ultra Q. And he became an idol to children. Children started worshipping Eiji Subaraya as a personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ultra Q influenced and it's created a flood of not just imitator shows, really, because who could really imitate that, you know, that kind of scale? But you had other studios jumping on that bandwagon doing, you know, monster TV shows or right. doing science fiction TV shows. And then this, after Ultraman, then the superhero shows started coming. Right. So 
it just opened up the floodgates and that went into the 70s there was a huge boom in the 70s uh, with Ultraman uh, another new Ultraman show leading the way and that is going on to this day in an unbroken chain with uh, you know two different franchises uh, with Kamen Rider and the Sen- Super Sentai series so you know huge yeah. influence it all started with Ultra Q for all the listeners out there who haven't seen Ultra Q you need to understand that this is a building block for kaiju movies and TV shows if you like the henshin shows yeah. and I like to tell you that you know when I what I also tell people is do you like Godzilla do you like the 60s Godzilla movies and Toho science fiction films Ultra Q is like mini movies they're mini Toho science fiction movies from that same period so if you like any of that you'll like Ultra Q and you'll like Ultraman because it's the same kind of tone and when I was a kid, I picked up on that when I really didn't know who was involved with what and who did what because there were no real credits in Ultraman um, except that, you know, it said a production of TBS at the end. Right. And it didn't say Tokyo Broadcasting System. But as a kid, I used to say, I wonder if that's Toho Broadcasting System. Obviously, Toho was involved with this somehow Yeah. because the effects look Toho. Oh, right, right. The sound effects were Toho and Toho actors appeared to them. Yeah. So I thought that there was, and there was this connection, you know, so they, they, it was an indelible style that they had when they, you know, they made these shows. But I have to say, too, if anybody's really interested in seeing Ultra Q, skip Ultra Q the movie made 1990. <laughs> because if you see that first, you'll, you'll probably turn you off from watching any of the Ultra Q stuff. And another interesting thing about that movie is originally the person who was scheduled to make that movie was Shusuke Kaneko. The guy who did the 90s Gamera yes. films. And he's a huge Ultra Q fan. He worked in an Ultra Q reference into uh, Gamera 2, Attack of Legion, uh, where the, the flower... Oh, yeah, that, right. The flower is from episode four of Ultra Q, Mammoth Flower. That was his homage to Ultra Q. And he originally was going to do a Garamon movie, the monster that kind of looks like mm-hmm. Pigman, yeah, yeah. eventually mutated into Pigman in Ultraman. Yeah. He wanted to do a movie with a big invasion of the Garamon creatures. And he lobbied and lobbied, but there were politics, power politics involved. And uh, he didn't get to direct the film. And it was directed by Akio Jisoji, who I respect and who I think his television work is awesome. But he kind of falters a little bit in his feature films. And I think Kaneka would have made an amazing movie. Right. And there were a couple of different Ultra Q movies pitched over the years. Mm-hmm. But they've all kind of fallen to the wayside. And, of course, I would also avoid Ultra Q Dark Fantasy for a first experience. Right. The t- now, we, the spin-off we've seen TV those. series. We, Tiger and I have watched those. And we can understand, like, you know, he saw the originals first and the ones that I have. And, and so when we were watching the Dark Fantasy um, episodes, it was, it was clear where, the, where the, uh, the origin came from and, you know, what they were doing. But I totally agree. Like, Dark Fantasy is a little less polished. Um, but speaking of Kaneko, you know, he also had that Ultra Q reference for the listeners. Also had the Ultra Q reference in Godzilla, Mother King, Ghidra. Yeah, the, the network. Digital, digital, uh, digital Q. Digital Q, yeah. Digital Q. Yeah, he had to get that little, another Ultra Q reference in there. Definitely. So, clearly, Ultra Q... Huge influence on everything we love, guys. Oh, animated series as well. And just, you know, everybody, that whole generation that grew up that eventually became either special effects people or filmmakers uh, or animators, especially doing works in the 80s and 90s, you'll see 
once you become familiar with Ultra Q, there's plenty of references out there to that and all the other uh, tokusatsu stuff that's great, like that we grew up with, like Godzilla and, and so on. So it's all connected, and people think everything's separate, like anime is separate from, you know, Godzilla, and it's all connected. But if you look back and connect everything, all roads lead back to A.G. Subaraya. Nice. Nice. Cool. Well, August, thank you so much for Thanks, joining Kyle. me here today and uh, in sunny San Francisco right now for WonderCon and hanging out. Appreciate yeah. that. Uh, we are going to start off a block of music right now with the Surf Coasters version of the Ultra Q theme. It kicks ass. It's awesome. Now he's choking you and me Good Lord, where is it gonna end? 
just heard the ultra q theme song by the surf coasters an amazing version of that theme song it really gets me amped kind of like the intro to the show but anyway followed that up with save the earth originally written by richiro manabe for godzilla versus hedra but uh, with updated lyrics by guy hemrick and performed by adrian russ and requested by jose and is that ever an apt song to play for this month because once again class it's time for our daikaiju discussions every month that the kaiju cast will showcase one particular film from the giant monster landscape and task the listeners with submitting thoughts questions and reviews for the next episode thanks to an online tool i've randomly assigned one movie to each month solidifying that this show will keep going for a long 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 time For each episode, I'll compile the notes I get and add those to the discussion. We're into the fourth assignment this month, the classic Godzilla film from 1971, Godzilla vs. Hedorah, which opened originally in Japan on July 24th and was released in the States by American International Pictures in April of 1972. The film was directed by Yoshimitsu Bano and scored by Richiro Manabe, and with the death of Eiji Tsuburaya in 1970, Teruyoshi Nakano was put in charge of the special effects. We don't have a ton of time to get into the nitty-gritty of this movie's production, so let's go ahead and start with the direct discussion from last night. All right, so we just finished watching Godzilla vs. Hydra, and I know, Martin, was this was the first time you'd seen this movie, and uh, Jeff, Sane, and Cindy had all seen it before. But Martin, what did you think of Godzilla vs. Hedra? All right, oh, so, Gojira Tai Hedra. Uh, I I was I was very excited to see this movie, and I was not let down let down at all. I I um, even with some subtle warnings about the whole thing, I really went into this one with the right attitude, and I had a lot of fun. I really enjoyed watching this one. Excellent, Jeff. Since you're next on the couch, it's silly fun. It is silly fun. It yeah, is. you know the thing I like about it now. Um, is the same reason I liked it when I was a kid. It has it has a lot of Godzilla in it, and there's a lot of fight scenes between the smog monster and Godzilla, for sure. And and the soundtrack is nice and funky. Godzilla flying, I don't know. That's just I I, I I'm just gonna pretend that didn't happen. Yeah, close not your a, eyes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that at all. Fingers in your ears, la 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 la. 
Yeah, but I like the soundtrack. It's you do like Manabe's soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, it's nice and funky. It's very, you know, the, up the time, you know, 1971. In the parlance of their times. In the parlance of the times, yes. Yes. All right, well, that's good. Hey, that's good. Sane? Well, um, I always felt like, especially when I saw this movie as a child, um, probably oh, eight, nine years old, oh. I always felt this was the Bizarro Universe Superman or uh, Godzilla movie. It always seemed like it stood out so differently in tone and feel than the the other movies. I was like, did another company make this movie or something? <laughs> um, so I still like it quite a bit. It's it's bizarre, and it's certainly the most outlandish of all the movies. I think uh, with some of the more super heroic theatrical kind of elements of the film um like his flying and uh we we were discussing during the actual course of the movie a little bit of the uh rather implausible physics of changing various forms of heat energy into electricity and other things that are just kind of uh, givens in the movie let's just they can just happen that's all that's that's good enough a forty thousand ton monster can fly jet propulsion from his heat ray um that's cool that's fine but i still yeah i, I still love this movie it's just it's uh, it's so bizarre it's how can you not like it it's got the strange animation and the crazy soundtrack and uh and i do lament the uh, poor dirty cat in the movie but other than that yeah it's a great film and i i still enjoy it that poor poor kitty on the stairs how about you cindy tell us a little bit about your feelings on godzilla versus hedora I this think, evening i think i agree with everybody else it's a very fun movie it's not to be taken too seriously the opening sequence i think we're saying it the opening credits with the music was almost like the opening of a james old james bond film then there were the interludes with the early 70s pop club with the singing go-go dancer and the really interesting little animations yes which since we did watch it subtitled um comes out different if you watch the dubbed version I'll agree with that. I, this was the first time I'd ever seen the movie subtitled, so I'd never, I'd never been able to see that juxtaposition between you know the written English language and and hear the Japanese version as well. And I, I did notice a few different things, but so uh, aside from that being my first time seeing it, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed it. I was kind of down on this movie earlier this month. I was like, oh man. You're not going to be missing much, Jody. If you that, you know, not going to come to this movie. But I, I have to say, I, I'm going to retract that statement. And uh, Jody does need to see this movie. It's a crazy, crazy film, and has to be seen to believe. I know a lot of people really hold this film in high regard, and I, I think I understand why now. It's a little. It's not as, uh, as hard on the eyes as the following movie, Godzilla vs. Gigan. And it's weird that we watched it, that it randomized itself to be the movie we watch after Godzilla vs. Gigan. But, you know, it's a it's got some really just different stuff going on. And I, like Sane said, with it's almost like a different company made this movie. It's not it's not your standard Toho fare. So, Cindy, what didn't you like about the movie? What didn't I like? I don't know if there is anything I didn't like. Okay. As a whole, I think it's a really fun film. All right, Sane. Um, filthy hippies. 
No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, actually, I don't know that there's anything really not to like about the movie. It's it's fun the way it is, and it's uh, very much a product of its time. So you can forgive it of just about everything. You know, you know they were trying to appeal to a different sort of crowd in this movie than they would have been, you know, perhaps later in the series or a little earlier in the series. You know, they were looking for young youth, kind of a, a youth audience. And, and perhaps I failed at the time, and that's why the films changed so radically afterwards. But, um, you know, I think they were probably looking for young adults, and they wanted to inject some of the cool, hip, you know, elements of the time with the go-go dancing and the crazy rock and roll and the kids with the sideburns and the dune buggies and electrical, <laughs> you know, electric guitars out in the middle of Mount Fuji with no electrical source. But, no, it's it's. There, I don't know that there's anything anything not to like about the movie, unless you're just kind of... You're too modernist to appreciate some other era. Uh, you know, I can't imagine why any viewer wouldn't love this movie. You know, or, or at least appreciate it and enjoy it. So, yeah, it's almost like it's almost like an artistic movement in a sense. You know, if you if you sort of paint the Godzilla landscape, you know, you start it very simply and black. Things are in black and white, and then as you continue, the muddy, the water's muddy a little bit, and then when you get to Godzilla versus Hidora, it's Paisley. yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like you're you're heading into you know a very different artistic view of the Godzilla landscape, and then it sort of like firms up and gets more you know modern as uh, as you get into the Heisei period. But Jeff, anything about this movie that you would have changed or not done? If I was to pick one thing, I think it would be the Godzilla theme that makes its appearance, you know, like the new theme. Yeah. It just sounds really almost comical. You know, it doesn't really fit what I think, you know, I mean, especially the old Godzilla theme, the original theme is so kind of bombastic and just sounds huge. This, you know, this wah, it just, you know, it doesn't sound like Godzilla. It sounds like wah, 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 yeah. wah. Yeah, that's what it kind of reminds me of. It just sounds something like something comical and not, you know, doesn't for me doesn't really fit Godzilla at all. Yeah, they didn't. You didn't hear the Ifukube theme at all in this yeah, film. Yeah, well, isn't the, isn't it true that this film? I mean, it's a first time. I mean, a new director, new composer. Correct. They kind of yes. tried to, you know, infuse new life into the series. Yeah, trying to. Yeah, and is isn't it true that this film has? The first time since the original film shows victims. I mean, it's all Hedorah's victims with the you know the skeletal remains and things like that, isn't it? Yes. Usually, um, I'd say that with the exception of... This is something I just read last night too, but with the exception of the original film and uh, where Godzilla attacks the tower mm-hmm. and uh, all the reporters are on the tower... Um, and a scene in War of the Gargantuas where uh, the green Gargantua, I think, is it the green or the brown? The green one goes after um, somebody in one of the buildings. Like this is the first, one of the first times you ever see actual victims from a rampage. Yeah. Get to the three-headed monster. There's the gangsters that are killed when... The mountainside collapses under them from uh, or, uh, Ghidra's gravity beams. True. So, but well, I think this is the first time you see. I know it's the first time you see skeletons. 
And this there's a lot of very graphic for the time effects where uh when Hidora passes over the people, you see their their skin start to yeah. get, you know, more and more decomposed and as the pollution kills them. And and what is the deal with like, you know, like we had mentioned while watching it the zombies in, in the field kind of kind of just watching the action watching the kids get down i you know honestly i have no idea i really have no idea what that's supposed to signify the only thing i could think hazard a guess completely off the top of my head without any basis in reality or fact checking is that it's another one of those us versus them things that you sort of get from the the 60s and 70s kids versus adults thing because they're all old none of those people that looked like zombies were young kids and they none of them were partying so that's what i i sort of think is going on there i have no idea why it's put in there it's weird that they show up in that one shot and then they show up again later yeah it is weird well, and on and on those scenes with those, it's not like those people are in any other shot, or there's nothing else in those shots. So those were intentionally put in there. Those could have been easily removed. So there is some intention. Like, they, they had a purpose in there, even though we don't know what it is. The director must have thought they meant something. And they kept it in there. Yeah, yeah and, they, and they kept it in there. Yeah, so when they edited it together, they watched it, and they said, that was awesome. That works. Let's keep it. Yeah. We don't need to pull that two-second clip out. <laughs> so, yeah, some something about it they they liked it. What about you, Martin? Is there something in the in the movie you would have pulled out, not used as a filmmaker yourself? Um, not used. Uh, the the one thing that that uh, I don't so much care for, but it's something that's a common one in a lot of them is I don't find the uh, like I don't necessarily completely always understand the action sequences and the and the fighting and stuff because there's a lot of times where you see like uh, there's not even like posturing, but there's supposed to be these moments where like the character is emoting because they're like close up of the eye, close up of the other one, you know, and then it's like shot from below where we're looking up at them, but there's no movement. It's like, we're supposed to be seeing them grimacing or grunting or preparing, or like it's supposed to be the stare down, the showdown or something, but you don't really get those out of those costumes because really the facial features don't ever really change or anything like that so those moments really slow down for me a lot like when you saw hedra's hedora's eye mm -hmm. and <laughs> it looked you almost expect there to be like it to squint or the pupil to dilate but yeah. there's nothing there because it's just a static yeah and, uh, and a know, lot prop. of those are there's a lot of shots that you can see where they go back and forth and they're very static and so they i, I know what they're trying to do but it doesn't do that for me and it and it's interesting one of, i i noticed it more in this one than i have in in others it was really stark to me is in the fight sequences when they were way back, it was really slow motion because it's supposed to be these very large creatures. But then you get in a little bit closer. There were times where it felt like this was sped up, um, and, and so it was it was odd to to kind of see that one. And um, and so it's I mean I've gotten used to it. It's it's part of this filmmaking, so I'm less critical of it now than I was before. But um, it. It's just a like I, I my heart never gets racing like I'm not like oh who's gonna make it out of this one it's <laughs> yeah that makes sense 
No, no, that totally makes sense. In fact, when you started t- talking about the the close-ups and and the, I thought you were going to talk about the pacing of the fights actually, because I noticed a lot in this film that, um, aside from the posturing, you know, where Godzilla's sort of like doing a pose, which we might not be getting because as Sane brought up during the movie, that might be some sort of cultural reference we just don't know about. Or uh, I'm trying to think of another one. Oh, right. Like when Godzilla stamps his foot and I said, I'm going to step on you if you don't move. <laughs> Here it comes. And then he goes and he goes to step on Hydra and Hydra flies away. Like, I don't, I, yeah, I don't. It's uh, like the wrestling match, you know. The wrestler stands in there and the guy's down on the ground. He, like, starts smacking the elbow like, here it comes, baby. Everybody in the crowd, get excited. Here's my elbow. It's coming down. Oh, hey, they they got out of the way. What the hell was that? Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> doubt that, you know, uh, wrestling has in the 70s and early late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. that wrestling had a, a profound in, influence on those Godzilla films and the, and the action in those mm-hmm. Godzilla films. I think if I was going to choose one thing to remove from the film, it would be the flying scene. Because when you think about it in terms of story, it doesn't, he doesn't actually end up doing anything with Hedra. Because, you know, he, he, he picks him up and he flies with him, but then he has to fight him again. And then he flies again, but there's no point. Because as you saw, as Godzilla's leaving... It's a long, long walk from Mount Fuji to the bay. <laughs> yeah. He could have just flown. But, you know, I don't know. I, that's the only thing I'd pull out of it, necessarily. He was too tired, right? He, he was worn out. Dude, he got his butt kicked in that movie. That was that was uh, one of the things that I found kind of not disturbing to watch, but just it was like in Godzilla versus Gigan when Ga- you, you're like, oh, wow, Godzilla is almost down for the count you know then they hedora poured all that sludge all over him that kind of just made me squirm a little bit (laughs) well and like we talked about too i was thinking of it as you know there's a guy in that suit that's you know laying in eight inches of sludge and inside i mean that that might actually really be a person that's like hey i can't get up i can't get up (laughs) would not surprise me at all but I, there was one last comment I wanted to make really quick, and uh, with the understanding that I haven't seen all of the movies, and that's what we're working on, this one has the heaviest message of environmental statement of any of the ones that we've seen so far, that I've ever seen. Yeah, definitely. In fact, uh, what uh, what might be relevant to the this conversation is that if you didn't know this, in the late 60s, Japan, because of all the economic growth that happened after the war, and the uh, like insane industrial growth that happened was extremely extremely polluted and i like uh the book that i was reading last night was um japan's favorite monster by steve rifle and i was specifically reading about this film and he mentions that uh that in some cities like people were wearing like uh air masks and that they had air tanks like oxygen tanks on the street pumping out oxygen so that people didn't get sick yeah i didn't know that and there a lot of people got really sick in japan so um yoshimitsu bano who is the director of this film as jeff mentioned this was the only film he did but 
uh, he said, I want to change the, the reference. So instead of Godzilla being a message about anti, you know, nu- nuclear power or war, I'm going to make it, a, you know, against pollution. And this was like, this was like sort of, from what I understand, this was Bano's sort of big hurrah. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a big difference. And this is going to be, uh, this is going to be a big deal. And I don't know how big of a deal it actually made there, but you know, it's pretty, it's pretty heavy handed. Well, and to me, I think, um, and I realize I'm looking at this with, you know, almost 40 year old glasses now, because in 71, you could probably try to make a message like that, but you could do like the weird transitions and the odd animations and like the crazy go-go dancing, but it's not a message that's timeless. Like it, it very much makes itself very dated when you try to send that message, but then you have all of those other things that are very much pop culture icons of that time. So I think it's hard to be able to have that message carry any weight once those things are no longer iconic. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if if Bano did have some sort of idea that this was going to help the the green movement of 1971. So Cindy, like we're going to wrap this up. Cindy, if uh if someone hasn't seen a Godzilla film at all, would you say this is a good film to show them? If they had seen nothing. If they'd never seen a Godzilla film before. If this was the very first Daikaiju discussion and Martin had never seen a Godzilla film, would you say you might want to choose a different one? No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know if I would actually choose this to be the very first film to show someone who'd never seen Godzilla, had no experience with it. But it's got some lighthearted and fun things in it, so it's not too heavy-handed. It does have a message in it, which I think only the, the first one actually really came on strong with a message. So it's got a lot of good elements, lots of fight scenes, a um, lot of iconic stuff from the 70s. If you're a pop culture person, you know, you can watch that stuff and laugh at it. And if you live through some of it or you, you know, your parents did, you go, oh, I remember stuff like that. You know, if you watch old TV shows. So it is a fun one to start with. I just don't know if it would be the very first one I'd recommend to someone. Right on. What about you, Jeff? You're going through a movie store and somebody says, oh, you know what? I've never seen Godzilla versus the Smog Monster before. You suggest it or no? But uh, have they seen a Godzilla movie? Yeah, I don't know. I just said that with with Cindy. She said, "Well, uh, her, okay. her 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 situation was no. Your situation was maybe one or two. When I ask Sane, I'll say they've seen say, them all. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm changing. I'm it's well, top of my head stuff, man. It's not scripted. Okay. Well, if it's the first one, if they've never seen a Godzilla movie, I would say definitely no. Okay. But if they have an interest in Godzilla, I'll say yeah, definitely check it out. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Do you think that if someone saw this as their first Godzilla movie, they'd be turned off from Godzilla? Maybe. But maybe if they just loved it, they'd be disappointed with what they with what they saw next. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> nothing else is like this one. <laughs> like, where's the go-go dancers? Come on, where's the animation? Where's the flying <laughs> the Godzilla? Animation. Right on. Because, what about, uh, sane. Oh, sure. Um, no, I probably wouldn't recommend this movie at all. I would say. If uh, I was going to show somebody that never seen a Godzilla movie ever, I would actually probably show them Destroy All Monsters. Okay. First, um, because I think that's the most 
just perfect encapsulation of that pop culture phenomenon of Godzilla. <laughs> it's got the crazy space aliens and yeah. the weird plot and, and so many monsters and the and the and you know they take themselves pretty seriously. Uh, not that they didn't Spog Monster. In fact, maybe overly seriously, and that's probably why I wouldn't recommend this as a first viewing for anybody. Um, and like I said, it really would depend on the company, too. If they wanted to see something that was bizarre and strange, yeah, of course, maybe I would take them to see this. You know? But then at the same time, if they were looking for that, we'd probably watch El Topo or something. So I was like, <laughs> you know, no, I'd probably, I'd probably pick another movie before this. I'd probably pick, like, yeah, uh, Gita 3 Headed Monster or, or maybe the first movie, depending on how much of a film scholar they were i could say how look at the relevance of this movie but if they were just kind of looking like hey i've never seen godzilla um what's the best recommendation you could say you know to watch uh, yeah destroyer monster is probably actually what i would would choose and that is an awesome awesome mm-hmm. film so uh martin so you just saw this for the first time how you what you're up to like maybe five godzilla movies now right uh well with this group yeah and, and it's and, and i think that's You've pretty got well another group that you're watching Godzilla no, uh, movies this with? Is, this is uh, with this group, but... Uh, but but in <laughs> Actually, the other group I'm with, we're watching the Power Rangers reruns. Um, uh, no, it, in by saying that, because I don't think that what we're seeing are actually like the, uh, the TV-friendly TBS Saturday afternoon Godzilla movies that you would normally see. So we haven't seen movies that I have seen five or six you know dozen times in my life that have been reruns on tv this one for sure was for sure like this was one of those heavily syndicated movies. but i but i just never came across i'm it. just saying to say i'd like to answer the same question that these three did about okay the, yeah definitely um because i don't think that i would have liked this movie as much if this had been one of the first ones that we had watched together I really think that I've needed to go through the process of these to start really getting an appreciation for them. Um, and I almost think that if I were to go back and watch some of the ones, in fact, I'd like to go back at some point in time and watch Destroya again because I think I'm starting to have a finer appreciation for what these movies have to offer. And I think to a certain degree, I've probably tried to take them too seriously or I've been I've had an expectation of something and... Right. And now I'm starting to have a lot more fun with them. Right on, man. Well, my I yeah. guess I would say my I would uh, I would agree. This is not one that I would show somebody for the first time. However, I think that a lot of people out there uh, in the states, at least, probably this was maybe one of the first Godzilla movies they saw, with it being shown in the mid '70s. I would imagine a lot on television, and the you know I know it came out in the theaters too, so. You know, it's it's not unheard of that people are like rabid fans of this movie. Um, I know that I got some really great comments from some of my listeners, but when I was putting on the the Godzilla Film Festival in 2004, that was one of the films that I kind of heard people say, "Oh, you gotta so show the Smog Monster that movie. I love that movie," and I think that might be because you know people like grew up on it and it's got this really nostalgic taste for them you know that's that's what they remember godzilla is because i remember i saw it a long time ago and then i saw it again you know several years ago and i said wow that movie just does not hold up <laughs> <laughs> but uh it's 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 a weird movie like i said it's off offbeat sort of got a lot of 
crazy elements in it, and it has to be seen to be believed, really. I think these early, like the early 70s ones, like the, you know, this one and then the uh, Gigan and Mechagodzilla, and then like for me it was a King Kong versus Godzilla. It's always like those four, they just kind of seem like they always had like bought a package of those four and they just kind of recycled those. It seems like those are the only four that I saw as a kid over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they bought movies and packages all the time, so it's quite possible they just got a package of these things and it was easy enough for them, like, we've got to fill a time slot. Let's here's throw a movie on, especially later in the evening. or you know, Because we used to have midnight monster movies on a few of the affiliates when I was a kid too. So, yeah, they could have just bought a package of 10 API movies and a couple of weird foreign films and you know, played whatever they felt like playing. So. so I remember hearing that there was, you know, a, a sequel to Mechagodzilla. But then it was like I kept waiting for that one to be on TV, but it was like never on TV, at least, you know, when I was in California. It seemed like I had to wait till I think it was like the 80s when I finally saw it, like on VHS. <laughs> nice. So who knows uh, what else Yoshimitsu Bano is attached to for uh, Godzilla. Uh, Yoshimitsu Bano is listed as one of the executive producers for this new upcoming 2012 Godzilla film from oh, okay. Legendary Pictures. I know. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I kind of I talked about it a little bit, you know, the last episode, not saying go out and download the last episode if you haven't heard it. But if you haven't heard the last episode, you need to go listen to it. But anyway, we'll see how that shakes out, of course, you know, hopefully for the better. But any final thoughts from anyone about Godzilla versus Hedra? Hedra, the smog monster? <laughs> Slimy Sludge Man. I I enjoyed this one a lot. I had a lot of fun with it, and I'm 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 uh, looking forward to these more and more each time. Uh, the most Muppety of all the uh, Godzilla villains, certainly uh, the most uh, ridiculous, I would say. And the most sparkly. So sparkly. He's a vampire. So very sparkly. <laughs> so what's the what's the next film? Uh, well, that's a fantastic question, Cindy. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Next month, I'll be at the Anime Oasis Convention in Boise, Idaho, and the movie, I'm going to switch it up a little bit, is going to be Godzilla vs. Biollante. So you guys will have to watch that while I'm gone, unfortunately. But it should be really cool, and uh, I'm going to try and get some audience participation, and I'm going to record the uh, Daikaiju discussion, hopefully, right after. If you're in Idaho, you have to go. It's mandatory. Everyone in Idaho has to go. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I want to thank my guests at the uh, Daikaiju discussion tonight, Martin, Jeff, Sane, Cindy. Thank you all for coming out, and uh, let's hear what everybody else had to say. So Jose wrote in that despite it being a strange one, he actually found the film somewhat educational. What with all the nebula diagrams and nuclear fission animation. But it still contains a message that still holds true today. Now, maybe more than ever, save the Earth. Tristan wrote in and had to say that uh, he said, Ah, the 70s era of Godzilla movies. A time when ridiculousness and absurdity abounded. However, Godzilla vs. Hydra stands out from other 70s entries in a number of ways. He notes the serious tone of many scenes in the film uh, being jarringly offset by the odd cartoons, bizarre poetry, and goofy Godzilla flying scenes. But despite its quirks, he loves Godzilla vs. Hedra. 
The smog monster itself is an inspired creation, and the final battle is one of his favorites. Steven wrote in and said that Godzilla vs. Hedra is rapidly becoming one of his favorite Godzilla films and notes that while many of the films sort of adhere to a cookie-cutter style plot, not many have the vision to take control and really make it a different Godzilla film. Godzilla vs. Hedra is one of those movies, however, and he says, yes, the film has its cliches and is probably an acquired taste even for Godzilla fans, but I'm really pleasantly surprised the more I see it. Another listener, Bill, notes that the movie is a mixed bag and more than any other Godzilla film, certainly a reflection of its time. Although not as strong as most of the 60s entries, Godzilla vs. Hedra for Bill is definitely the best film of the 70s. Bob wrote in to say that he was struck by how weirdly disjointed the tone was. It was as if there was a collision between several films and they released the result and notes that coming after Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Son of Godzilla, and Destroy All Monsters, he was impressed by how dark the film was. All the fights took place at night, and sometimes it was a bit too dark to see what the heck was going on clearly. Lastly, Chris, what's up, dude, sent in some thoughts, but notably he and his girlfriend mentioned the cat scene. The girlfriend loved that the cat was spared and the humans got killed. Chris thinks this is symbolic because the cat was just as innocent as Hedorah was, really, when you think about it, just a bystander while mankind ruins everything. So if this is the case, maybe Hedorah could have convinced Godzilla that the humans created him too, and they should both team up. Anyway, I think everyone mentioned the strong anti-pollution theme, and a lot of listeners noted the horrific deaths of Hedra's victims. Overall, I found Hedra to be so disjointed that it's less enjoyable than a lot of the other films from the Showa series. There are some really endearing points, for sure. I don't know if I'm alone here, but I really do love the animation and the production design for the movie. The creativity involved with pretty much every scene, it stands, it stands very tall for me. Even those that break, break you out of that story, like the, um, I don't even know how to describe it, the, the little TV-shaped... Uh, shapes where people are appearing and shouting and they just kind of go into a weird little animation thing. I really dig that. They, they really add a level of authenticity to the time period that this movie was made in. And, you know, truth be told, I even love that Ken is playing with Godzilla toys. And with the wrap-up of this month's homework, I want to congratulate all of the students who completed their assignment. Another round of fantastic contributions, people. Remember, that while it's definitely too late to submit anything for Godzilla vs. Hedra, there's no time like the present to sit down and watch the next assignment, Godzilla vs. Biollante. I do understand that this film is not commercially available in any official capacity, and that is unfortunate, but if you have a really old VHS copy, I'd love to get your thoughts. If you really want to participate, perhaps your local library might have a dusty tape on their shelves. Just a suggestion. Anyway, if you're able to submit your thoughts, questions, or views, do so before May 29th. That's when I'll be screening the film at Anime Oasis in Boise, Idaho. Hey, and if you're anywhere near the city towards the end of the month, send me an email. I'd love to meet up with you and shoot the breeze about the big G. Let's move on to the news. This is United Nations reporter Eric Carter with the news. The world is stunned to discover that prehistoric creatures exist in the 20th century. The armies have been alerted as we wait for more news from Japan. 
as I almost always like to mention, I don't do much in the way of news. I like to rely on my friends for that assistance. In fact, a monthly podcast, including news, is somewhat ridiculous because there are tons of internet locations. You'll be able to read everything I talk about here before I talk about it. So let's get started. The world's largest Terrapin returns to the small screen on May 18th. Make sure that you go pick up or order or locate your own copy of the original Gamera film from the Shout Factory. I'll have some links to places that sell the movie if you're unable to find some in your own city, town, or fishing village. Additionally, Sci-Fi Japan has posted a really cool essay by Sean Coates about the counterculture performance of Daikaiju Varan's leading lady, Ayumi Sonoda. In the face of traditionally subdued and subservient roles women were placed in in Japan, I'll have the link in the show notes to that. Really cool article. Another thing from Sci-Fi Japan, and other places I've seen this, but, you know, I'll have the link to Sci-Fi Japan for this. If you're a fan of the old-school ways regarding your giant monster movies, you'll want to keep an eye out for the upcoming release of Death Kappa. Death Kappa is a traditionally shot but still slick and stylish kaiju film by Japanese effects expert Tomu Haraguchi, who has lent his hand to the 90s Gamera trilogy and movies like Sakuya Okaiden and Kibakichi. If you know his work, you'll appreciate what he's doing with this film. For now, you got to check out the trailer at SciFiJapan.com and brace yourselves. Are you ready? Because Media Blasters is going to be releasing this film here in America at the end of July. Boom. Death Kappa. So also, listener John wrote in suggesting that I ask everyone out there to uh, sort of send in their thoughts on what you guys feel the Legendary Pictures movie needs to have or not have. Who knows, maybe somebody at Legendary Pictures will stumble across the podcast. It's been known to happen to some people. Specifically, John thinks that the name Godzilla or Gojira should be portrayed in a mystical sense. In the TriStar film, he enjoyed the Japanese fisherman naming Gojira, but hated that Harry Shearer's character announced the name as Godzilla. Like it was like a mistake or some kind of language barrier. Really bugged him. Bill, um, whose input I read earlier from the Daikaiju discussion, also mentioned that he has the feeling that climate change slash global warming will be a major plot point in the Legendary Pictures film and admits that it would be a perfect fit. He also asked me if I think the film would be a total reboot or have any pre-established continuity. While at this point I can only hazard a guess, I think that the first film could be established as having happened in the story but only maybe only referenced through storytelling. Perhaps that would be one way to like connect this film with what we already know and love, but still separate it for a reboot. And personally, I mean, I think that Godzilla's story needs a reboot, but it has to be a quality reboot, something that's going to really set it apart from the existing story that we know so that nobody goes, eh, that's not how he was in the movies or, you know, that's not how he was in the storyline that progressed from Toho. We need something different, but we still need it to be Godzilla. We need it to essentially look, act, and, you know, be treated like Godzilla as opposed to what happened at TriStar and all that stuff. Anywho, feel free to send in your own thoughts on the upcoming film. Um, If I have to start a new segment, I will. With any luck, someone in the industry will, you know, start polling websites, forums, and 
listening to the fans' desires for this film. At least keep an ear out for what is essential to a Godzilla movie. Am I right? Right? Feel free to email me, Legendary Pictures, anytime. Uh, my, my email inbox is always open for you. Finally, I want to really take some time here to thank everyone who has written in, not just this past month, but throughout the entire time I've been doing this show. While I might be doing this without you guys, it definitely would not be as much fun. So keep those letters and suggestions coming. I really do enjoy reading your comments, questions, and music requests. And, you know, this whole Daikaiju discussion thing, I think is pretty cool. That about wraps things up here. As always, I'd like to say that if you found the Kaiju Cast through iTunes or some other podcast listening and would like to visit the website, just point your browser to kaijucast.com and you'll be able to access not only the current shows, but also the older episodes, show notes, and links to other handy websites like Sci-Fi Japan. Vote in the polls. And, you know, if you want to order a print as long as they last, just send me an email. Let me know. I love hearing from you guys. And I hope to continue to get great feedback. Send an email to controller at kaijucast.com. Thanks again to August Ragoni for hanging out with me in San Francisco for WonderCon. And for the in-depth information on Ultra Q, let's all hope that a stateside English release is on the horizon. I'm going to leave you with one final track for this episode. But before you say to yourself, uh, what the heck is he doing? Just remember that these monsters need a swinging kaiju hepcat to help guide them through the universe. And Gilala is just the creature to help them on their way, baby. Jamata.